Well, good morning, church. So I'm going to admit we have a house full of guests today, uh, and it is good that you are here. Um, At first, I was contemplating how this will be difficult for us to preach the final sola to a bunch of visitors, but it didn't create a problem when we were worshiping. Um, The altos in the room, y'all are staying, by the way. Um, I think we could all agree with that. Um, But the Holy Spirit worked in us while we were singing songs of praise to our Lord. And so I believe that even though you're coming to the bookend of our five solas, like he's going to work here as well. Because we didn't have a problem worshiping the Lord with song and singing the word. So maybe we won't have a problem with preaching the word. Um, Church, let me start off by saying it is really good to sing with you guys. And and I I enjoyed worshiping with you all this morning. Let's continue worshiping as we look at the five solas and in that way to the glory of God alone. Amen. Sola Dea Gloria, and I am not a Latin speaker. Uh, I'm from Oklahoma. I speak Oklahoman and not that well. I probably get a D in that. Um, So I'm not going to try to continue on in Latin. From now on, I will say, to God alone be the glory. To God alone be the glory is the last part of our series as we've studied these last five weeks on the so-called five solas of the Protestant Reformation. I'm a little bit touchy when it comes to the five solas of the Reformation. I discovered them in college. In college, as those who have heard my testimony, I was uh, thrown into a more liberal um, moment in a good institution, but the institution had gone through some liberalism, and in that liberalism, I was facing an Old Testament class and a philosophy class, and in the Old Testament class, he started off by saying, who's a Dallas Cowboy fan, and half the people raised their hands because Oklahoma doesn't have a football team so uh, other than the Sooners, so everybody's a Dallas Cowboy fan. I mean, they're America's football team, and so um, everybody apparently was supposed to raise their hand. They all raised their hand, and he said, I bet your daddies are Dallas Cowboy fans. And I was like, huh, well, uh, yeah, that's true. How many of you are Baptist? Everybody in the room, we're at a Baptist college, and so everybody raises their hand. I bet your daddies are Baptist. How many of you are Oklahomans? I bet your daddy is an Oklahoman. I bet you you haven't moved even very far from where you, like, I would go on to say, you believe what you believe and you are what you are because your daddy told you so. And if you write on any test because daddy said so, I'm gonna flunk you. Like, this is my introduction into school and I'm like, oh no. Like, I do have a faithful father. My father's probably gonna watch this later this afternoon. Like, I have a faithful father who's raised me in the word. But I haven't questioned my dad very much at all. In fact, as a good legalist growing up, like I looked for my dad's check boxes on like, you know, if I can honor my father and my mother, like, well then like my dad's reads the word and like I'll probably be okay. But like all of a sudden, I gotta find a final authority higher than my father. Does that make sense? I don't think the professor was going for this. I don't think the philosophy teacher was going for this. When he started like pouncing on us and he was like, hey, by the way, who wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Torah? Do y'all know? Moses. 
And he says, was Moses around when Adam and Eve were in the garden? Was he around when, and he just started unraveling, and he said, your Old Testament professor is going to teach you about oral tradition. Like, I could tell you a story right now, I guarantee you you won't tell it correctly when you go out of here. And he just started, like, unpacking everything. And so I had one teacher who was like, you can't trust your daddy. I have another teacher who was like, you can't trust the scriptures. And I'm like, what is going on? I went home and told my dad. That didn't work out well. My dad was like, tell me who they are, I'm going. Um, But to the praise of his glorious grace, I started reading some people. Theodore Beza. Theodore is one of the ways I got to his name. Student of John Calvin. Started reading about this man in Geneva. Sphingli and Calvin and Luther. Started reading about some people who also had to come to a final authority. And they landed on what? Scripture alone. So the professors weren't trying to, but they made me land on Scripture alone. I was like, if, if the final authority is Scripture, and the Holy Spirit's doing this, like I had no, like the Holy Spirit's like, I think it's Scripture. I think Scripture's supposed to be the answer here. Holy Spirit's dwelling up in me. It's God's word Like, is there any other people that have had this problem before and internet's a new thing? I'm using my compact and I'm looking and like all of a sudden I'm coming to like, oh, there's this thing, this this phrase, scripture alone is the final authoritative rule of faith. And like, I'm dwelling up and I'm like, well, are there some other onlys? And it started a spiral of me going back and, and reading of faithful men who said, let's get some things very clear. And these five so-called solas, onlys, we've been preaching through, sola gratia, by grace alone, solo Christo, on the basis of Christ alone, solo fide, through the means of faith alone, sola de gloria, to the ultimate glory of God alone, sola scriptura, as taught with the final and decisive authority of scripture alone. I have found these five solas to be precious and illuminating, to say the least. The Reformation was a controversy in the Roman Catholic Church over how helpless we really are. Like, what is our real station that we have? Is it that we're truly dead, fully dead, and full of guilt? Do we have shame? The Reformers believe that if any of us are to escape hell and enjoy the pleasures of God at his right hand forevermore, God himself will have to raise us and give us spiritual health. As Pastor Brian for four weeks has laid out before us, the Reformation was really about justification. I can't pass over it. Justification is a legal declaration by one who has authority that you are in right standing. None of us deserve to ever hear the word justified. The Reformation was about something that none of us can claim. 
as spiritually dead people that we all are, we need to be raised to life. And the way that we are raised to life is we must be justified. It's all about justification. Justification, a legal act and declaration where one is declared to be in right standing, where God can now be 100% for us. So this is, we were talking in Sunday school, preaching is supposed to fuel affections and fire that would result in evangelism like i'm i'm stoking some flames hopefully for those who are redeemed in justification faith receives a finished work of christ it's already done the gospel is not an imperative something for you to go do it's an indicative it's already been done and in justification faith receives the final work of not yourself but of christ performed outside of us and counted as ours inside of us. So my point so far is that the five solos provided wonderful clarity about the crux of the reformation and what the true heart of the gospel is. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for me. The clause that the five prepositional phrases modify by grace alone, through Christ alone, I'm sorry, by Christ, sorry, by grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are prepositional phrases, but the phrase that it modifies is you are justified by, through, for, according to. We are justified before God by grace alone with no merit or favor. If you want to just tune me in for this point, like this is the summation, this is the thesis, and it'll be the end as well. Justification before God is by grace alone with no merit favored whatsoever by yourself. On the basis of Christ alone with no other sacrifice or righteousness at its foundation or even sniffed at or needed through the means of faith alone not including any human works whatsoever to the end that all things ultimately lead to the glory of god alone as taught with the final and decisive authority in scripture alone those five modifiers of justification divide the hinge issues of the reformation and the heart of the gospel that we bleed at Light in the Desert Church? If so, then we should define glory. Not an easy word. What is glory? I don't use it too often in English. Again, from Oklahoma. I didn't grow up as an Oklahoman word that I would throw out on the baseball field. Glory! Heard it in church. What's glory? Let's define it. If the ultimate ends are for glory, we should know what this word means. Let's use scripture to define it. Isaiah 6. We are going to go on a marathon of scriptures. So get your um, Bibles out, lick those fingers so you can turn the pages quickly. Uh, And we're going to go. Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. Verse 3 is how we're going to define or at least introduce the meaning of glory. King Uzziah is a good king, by the way. 
He was like one of the best, and everybody was really sad when he died. That's kind of how we're going to keep from parachuting into this text. But Isaiah is pretty sad that his good king is dead, and so he's going to have to deal with it. Here we go. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. He was high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. Now these seraphim are going to say something. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Beautiful passage. Holy, the seraphim. Like, they could have said anything. These six seraphim. And they're like, hey, Isaiah, like you're questioning like if there's going to be a new king that can sit on this throne. <laughs> Let me introduce you. Let, holy, 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 none like him, completely separated from the common. No one like him. Holy, holy, holy. Holy means completely unique, different. And they said it three times. Unique. No one like him, not common at all. And the result of Isaiah seeing this, they were like, because there's a God, there are no other gods. His godness and the fact that he alone is God, glory fills the earth. What radiates from the uniqueness of God, the fact that he can claim to be the only God, his uniqueness, his holiness radiates glory. So glory is the radiation of the uniqueness of God. It's the best way I can define it. Using Scripture to come up with the definition, at least Isaiah 6, 3 is saying, that the holiness of God radiates out and fills the earth for all people to see. And when it does, it's called glory. The basic meaning of holy is separated from the common, completely none, no one else like you. So when you carry that definition all the way out to infinite separation from everything else, his godness, he is not common. And the effect of that makes him one of a kind. He's like the rarest and most perfect diamond in the world. He's the treasure hidden in a field. He's the most precious pearl. But there are no other pearls. There are no other treasures. There are no, that's how uncommon and unique he is. God's uniqueness as the only God, his godness, makes him infinitely valuable. That is, he is holy. So when you say the word holy, you're talking about value and worth. Have you ever seen a weighted blanket? Now, I'm talking to the wrong people. Those from Wisconsin or Minnesota might know what a blanket is. A blanket is something that you put on yourself when you're cold. We live in Phoenix. I get it. We don't talk about weighted blankets very often. I didn't know that they make weighted blankets in weight measurements. How big would you like one? I'd like one in a king, 15 pounds. I'd like one in a king, 25 pounds. It's the amount of weight. 
Well, then they also say, well, how should you measure this out? Well, it's based off of your weight. If you're over, I'm not going to say my weight, <laughs> but I deserve the 25-pounder. The weight of God's holiness is not in measurement. It is infinite. That's called glory. From the cover to cover of the Bible, the great dominating reality is that he is infinitely valuable, he's infinitely pure, and he is beautiful, and he's divine in his uniqueness. This godness shines forth through all creation and through all acts of God in history, and especially in redemption, as the glory of God, that is, the outward radiance of his intrinsic worth and the beauty and the greatness of his manifold perfections, So before I go on there, I want you to think about those acts of God or creation. If you stare at the superstitions, it is glorious. Many of you are praying for some of my friends right now, and they talk about like, oh, right now is the most beautiful time to set out uh, out there to the Lost Dutchman. You can take a picture of a cactus with snow on the mountains, on the peaks, and they want to talk about the beauty of God. And I'm like, what you don't know is you're underneath the weighted blanket of the glory of God. That's not about snow on a mountain or a cactus. That's about our God who created those things. I want you to think about the acts of God. Why was Jericho unique. It was so that Joshua could not take the credit. Joshua went and met with the Lord, and the Lord said, here's how this is going to go down. And you know that Joshua, if he was anything like you or I, was sitting there going, this sounds strange. And he probably used the wrong word. This is unique in a way that you will only, because when those trumpets blasted, And those walls came down. They didn't turn around and look at the trumpeteers and like, face. What did they do? They gave glory to God. When Moses is out there and he's at the pinnacle and the Red Sea is there and all of Egypt is bearing down on them, what happens? He parts the water. You think they were given knuckles Or high fives to Moses as this was happening? Who received glory? Every act of God so that he would receive glory. He's uniquely acting in your justification. The act of salvation that no one else may boast. Only the Lord. That's why he receives glory alone by our justification, being in right standing with God. So I referred to the radiance of the beauty of his manifold perfections because the Bible can speak of it as the glory of God's might. Second, I'm going I'm to go through these texts quick, but I'm going to slow down so you can write down the passage and study them later. Second Thessalonians 1, 9. Second Thessalonians 1, 9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of his might. God's might. 
And when God flexes and parts the water or takes stone upon stone, none remaining, it's the glory of his might. When he's able to raise a dead man and breathe life into me, it's the glory of his might. Ephesians 1.6, again, Ephesians 1.6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. We have been blessed in Christ, our union with Christ. Every blessing that you have is by your unity to Christ. And so every blessing is a grace because it was given to Christ. And what Christ has earned, he rightfully gives to you. To the praise of his glorious grace. At the foundation of all salvation. Paul would argue everything. At the foundation is grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. God's interaction with you. Is in grace. Unmerited not warranted on your own. So he gave Christ in grace that Christ would accomplish what you could not being holy and blameless as he is holy and blameless. Not under Adam's sin and not putting sin upon himself. To be received through faith. This is the building blocks. to the praise of his glorious grace. It can simply speak to the glory of God. His glorious grace is the glory of God. Many of us look to countless attributes of God. We did seven weeks of study in in Sunday uh, studies, a little plug. We we walk through the Bible in our Sunday studies. Come join us. Uh, We did 14 weeks, seven and seven in the attributes of God. We couldn't get to them all, but we just joyfully went through as many as we could. And those attributes of God collectively, like when we left, we were sitting in glory as we looked at the valuable, valuableness, the worth of who God is. Glory is spiritually seen. It is spiritually savored. And it is shown by his redeemed people. Those who are welling up right now, it's a work of the Holy Spirit within you. There might be two types of people in this room, and some might think that we're talking nonsense. I beg you, if this is nonsense to you, talk to us later. And I also beg you, if you're welling up with joy, give credit to the Lord. Now back to the Reformation and the five solos. We've done a foundation. We know what glory is now. So now let's run through a bunch of text. We're going to go through 2 Corinthians 4.15 and then we'll jump into Ephesians 2. Our being made spiritually alive where God is 100% for us and he's become 100% for us in Christ, in Christ justifying us 
we can see many texts that talk about how this justification is for God's glory. 2 Corinthians 4.15 For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. As grace is extended to more and more people, what is the result? Thanksgiving to the glory of God. Grace produces the glory of God. Grace extended to you and I results in God receiving glory. Because he is alone who we should want favor from. The benevolence of God results in thanksgiving. To compound that even more as grace extends to more and more people we are justified by grace alone god's grace ends with the glory of god ephesians 2 8 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing it is a gift of god why so that no one may boast the opposite ends of grace extending to the glory of god is that we would boast that Joshua would rise up and say, look what I've done. Or that Moses would be like, I'm putting them down. That was me. Or that you and I would ever say that you've come underneath the lordship of God and say, I did it. I climbed this mount. I defeated self. And I'm holy and blameless. I can go ask God to get off his throne now because I am holy and blameless as he is. So that no one may boast. Grace and faith are a gift. All are there to strip away our boasting. To go even further, to show that this is throughout all of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For, considering, for consider your calling brothers, not many of you were what? Wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, this is about election. God chose what is foolish in the world. Why? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Isaiah, he did not boast. We should not boast either. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, united with Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness right doing and sanctification and redemption so that is written let the one who boasts boast in the lord there's a positive so that and a negative so that god's done all of this negative so that no one can boast god's done all of this why positive so that the one who boasts boast in the lord god has saved you so that you would boast in the lord 
The five solas in a true understanding, I believe, present a very small opinion of self and a grand picture of God. He chose, this is about election, he's stripping away boasting so that no human may boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ so that you may boast in the Lord. God's doing everything to get glory. The Bible is about getting glory for the Lord. We'll go quickly through these other ones, but they just repeat the same thing. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. How are we going to be holy and blameless before him? In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. to the praise of the glory of the grace of God. This is the great purpose of justification. Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to, be to, live to, like why we exist, to the praise of his glory. Your existence is to be to the glory you existing as in Christ is radiating the uniqueness and holiness of God. We as a church. And then one of my favorite passages, and if you've not committed this to Scripture, commit Romans eleven thirty three through 36 to Scripture. Peter says that Paul is sometimes difficult. And Romans, probably one of his more difficult and theological texts. Would you agree? I feel like Paul was trying to write an analogy of getting out in a rowboat and going down to the ocean here. And I don't know if you've ever looked into the water and saw that it was deeper than you could fathom. But you look and you're like, I can see so far. I can see so far. I can see so far. Like the depths upon depths upon depths. Every time I read this, like I think about it. Paul cannot fathom the depths. So he says, oh, the depth. Haven't seen the end of them. Explore forever. Don't think I'll reach the end. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him, from him, and through him, and to him, all things. To him be glory forever. At the bottom of all salvation and all the redeeming purposes of God is grace. Grace is the foundation of salvation. And therefore Christ was sent as that foundation and how shall we enjoy Christ without boasting in ourselves? Answer, it's to be received by the gift of faith, not by any works of our own so that it ends with glory. Glory for God, not ours. 
full circle going back to Isaiah now in chapter 2. I'm going to read all of 12 through 17, but it's really the bookends that I want to draw out. But 12 through 17 of chapter 2 of Isaiah. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, the lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled. And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. All of history, including justification, is for the glory of God alone. The gift of spiritual life from the dead, of justification, God's being 100% for us, not against us, along with all the transformative and transformation of life that flows from this gift through faith leads ultimately to the glory of God alone. Any praise or glory that we receive is owing to grace. We will receive praise and glory. We will be glorified. I'm working for jewels. I'm laboring for jewels. That when I'm thrown through the furnace, everything that I did, served, precious gems would remain. Why? Not for my crown. I'm going to lay them down at Jesus' feet. So may we live for the glory of God. There are two types of individuals in this room. Those who are still trying to be God and those who try to live for God's glory alone. Those who reject God, His grace and His gift of salvation. And those who trudge on in the grave. And then there's those who have stripped themselves of their old clothes and are putting on the new self for the glory of God. There are those whom are dead in Adam, dead all the more in themselves. And then there are those who have been brought to life by the miracle of the new birth. There are those who will bow the knee later. And there are those who are laying prostrate. Prostrate on the ground, digging a hole for their nose so that they can get further low to the glory of God alone. Hear me today, there's no room for boasting in yourself. Boast today in the grace and the righteousness of Christ imputed to you on the account of Jesus' work received by faith for the glory of God alone because that's what Scripture has taught. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, uh, not enough time to go through all the text. But you have been clear and we submit to your word. 
I believe that you justifying and calling me right before God can only happen because you were gracious. And that you sent Christ to accomplish what I failed to do and couldn't. And that Christ is generous and gave me his inheritance and his blessing. And I receive it through faith, hope, trust, and belief in Jesus, in union with Jesus. And I do this so that I might radiate that there's only one God. So receive our praise to the glory of your might, to the glory of your grace, to the glory of your salvation, to the glory of all things for from whom and to whom and through whom are all things. And God's people said, Amen.